Find your way to Matthew chapter number 15. Recent weeks we've been, I think, in uh, Matthew, Mark, we've been in John. I think we've been in Luke. For some reason I've uh, been neglecting Luke. Maybe that'll be next week. We'll see. But anyway, um, what we've been looking at for some time now is uh, I've entitled our, our series Refocus. We're trying to, to get a clearer view of Jesus through the accounts of the New Testament, of the, of the four Gospels here, or I guess three Gospels since I'm leaving Luke out, right? And uh, so we've been trying to get just a clearer view of who Jesus is without all the extra trappings of uh, prejudice and religion and all of these things. And in recent weeks, what we've been seeing is Jesus is preparing his disciples for ministry after he's gone. Uh, they don't know it. They don't realize it yet, but his days are numbered. They're hoping that this is going to be the rest of their life. They're just going to follow Jesus around. They're going to be his uh, his right-hand men, his disciples, and they're going to serve in his uh, in his eventual kingdom and all of these things that they have all of it planned out. They have all of it figured out in their minds of what God's going to do, of what his plan is, of how he's going to use them, and they have no clue what's just around the bend. And I find that's a, a lot the same as we are in our lives. We try to plan ahead. We try to figure out two or three steps ahead or even some of us more than that. I've never been a big planner, but if it was up to Les, she would have things planned out for 10 years. And so sometimes we try to have it figured out and we know what the next step's going to be. We understand where we want things to turn out five years from now, 10 years from now. And if we could, we would just submit our plans to God and just have him to, to rubber stamp it, just him to okay and say, okay, this is, this is what it's going to be like. But we don't have that ability. That's not the way that God works. He knows what's best, and a lot of times we have no clue what's around the corner. There's so many different variables in life. And so he is preparing them for whenever they are without him. And so whenever he was feeding the 5,000, he was showing them uh, how much that he could do with something so little. Mm -hmm. And that's comforting to us because if, we, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't have a whole lot to offer the Lord, but he can do much with our little. We saw whenever Peter was walking on the water, the importance of keeping our eyes on the Lord after we begin walking with him. Uh, it's a matter of faithfulness. It's a matter of keeping our focus on him and depending on him. Because too often in our Christian lives, it's easy for us to get sidetracked or distracted. Uh, there's all of the bumps and bends and turns that come along in life that will cause us to take our eyes off the Lord and focus on other things for a little bit. And it will get us completely off track. We need to keep focused on the Lord. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus challenged the multitude's motives. He had a great number of people following him, but most of them weren't there for him. They were there for selfish reasons. They weren't there to get to know him, to learn from him. They were there for the fish and for the different things. And so he challenged them in their motives, and many of them departed. Many of them left him. And Jesus was okay with that because he wanted people to be following him for the right reason. He wanted people that would actually serve him. He wasn't just interested in numbers. He wasn't just interested in having as big of a group as he could. And that flies in the face of religion today because today religion is all about numbers, right? Get as many people as you can. Get as big of a crowd as you can. And we get our focus, our attention on uh, the big ministries, on the big churches, on the big... And God isn't in the big. 
He would much rather have a handful of faithful people than a bunch of people who are just uh, casually Christian. Yeah. Right? And then last week what we saw was um, Pharisees came down from Jerusalem to try to find fault with Jesus. They were looking for faults. They were looking for something wrong. And by the way, whenever you're, uh, anything that you're doing in life, if you are looking for something, more than likely you'll find it. What I mean by that, if you're looking at Christ and you're trying to find faults in him, you're going to find it. If you're looking at your brothers and sisters in Christ and you're looking for faults in their lives, you're going to find them, right? And so oftentimes we're going to find what we're looking for. And you're going to miss out on a lot of things because you ignore them, right? Even in our lives, we often focus on all of the bad things because for some reason that's what we're looking for. And we miss out on all the blessings because they just kind of go on unnoticed. And you have to intentionally go to, there is an old song, Count Your Many Blessings. Anyone ever heard that? And so sometimes we need to pull aside and think back of all the things that God has done in our lives, all of the blessings that he's brought, the ways that he's worked, because if we're not careful, those things go by unnoticed, right? But anyway, that was, that was free. Um, as we look at this passage last week, the Pharisees were coming looking for fault within Jesus, and we find that these men were very religious, that they had all of the rituals, the traditions, the customs down, and their fault with Jesus is that him and his disciples didn't wash their hands whenever they ate. Shame. I have a grandmother that every time you eat at her house, she will not let you eat unless you wash your hands. I mean, before you come to the table, okay, come and eat, come and eat. Did you wash? Did you wash? Did you wash your hands? That's the way she does. But anyway, <laughs> that's kind of the way these Pharisees were. And so they said, you and your disciples don't wash your hands. And see, the thing is, they had clean hands, they had dirty hearts. And so Jesus taught them that it wasn't, uh, wasn't the outside, it wasn't the appearance, it wasn't the rituals and the traditions, but what really mattered was whether or not the Lord had cleansed your heart, the, the work that the Lord was doing on the inside. And so there's plenty of whited sepulchers out there. There are plenty of people who have all the formalities of religion figured out, and they can present themselves as being very holy and being very spiritual, but inside they are full of dead men's bones. Inside they are as wicked as the devil himself, even though they have the appearance of religion and of righteousness. And so they didn't need to wash their hands. They needed to cleanse their hearts. And so segueing into where we're at today, one reason that this ritual washing was so important is because the Jews were constantly interacting with the Gentiles. The people there at that time uh, were under Roman authority. Uh, they were in busy places where there was trading and uh, imports and exports, and people were constantly coming through Israel that were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They were pagans. They were unclean. And so these hyper-religious -religion, uh, people were constantly washing the filth of the Gentiles off of themselves. That was part of the reason behind these constant washings is because they were coming in contact with unclean Gentiles. They, re, they uh, risked touching something that the Gentiles had touched, and they may contaminate themselves so constantly wash, right? They treated Gentiles like they were COVID. <laughs> And so that set the stage for where we're at today because Jesus is going to take his disciples out of Israel and into Gentile territory. And Matthew is documenting Jesus' departure. The further you go through the book of Matthew, the further he gets from Jerusalem. 
Okay, and he's kind of going away, pulling away from the Jews, away from uh, the religiosity there. And the more hostile they get toward him, the more he goes away from them. And just a, a side note, an extra lesson in that. Same thing goes in our lives today. Uh, if we seek after him, if we desire him, he will come in and commune with us. But if we start pushing him out of our lives, he will go. I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but he will have as much to do with you as you want to do with him. And he will not come where he's unwelcome. And so if you decide that you're not interested in the things of God and not interested in what he thinks of your life, he will uh, He will respect your decision, your wishes, and he will let you go about on your own. And so that's kind of what he was doing with the Jews here. And so the disciples are going to have to get to the get used to the idea that God loves the Gentiles just as much as he does the Jews, because they're going to soon find themselves ministering among them. They are going to soon find that Christianity wasn't just a Jewish sect, but instead the Jews are going to reject Christianity. And within their lifetimes, Christianity is going to be predominantly a Gentile faith. And that's something they're going to have to get used to with them being Jews. And so... Uh, the events in today's passage is just a start on that spread of the faith of Christ from just in Israel out into the uttermost parts of the world. So let's look at Matthew chapter 15, down verse number 21 is where we're at. It says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, um, we find that this can be a little bit confusing to us, a little off-putting for us. And just the way that he handles this, this Gentile woman may seem a little bit unkind, but if we look at it in context, if we understand what God is doing here, what Jesus is doing here, it makes a little bit more sense to us. So right after Jesus has taught about what does and does not defile a man, he departs into the regions of Tyre and Sidon. That's north of Israel, okay? If you're kind of following along, you leave Israel, you're headed toward Antioch, we we're talking about in Sunday school, and Tyre and Sidon is in between, okay? Right around that little bend that's above Israel around the Mediterranean. Uh, Mark 7 gives us more details saying that they were to stay in a house on the coast there, and they were doing this to try to get away from the multitudes and the crowds. He couldn't be hid in Israel. All the people were coming after him. And so they leave Israel and they go to a house on the coast outside of Israel. So basically Jesus is on a holiday. He's on a vacation and he's staying at a beach house. 
we can kind of relate to that, can't we? Jesus says, I need a break. Let me go to the beach. I want to get out of my country. I'm going to go to another country where they don't know me. I'm going to unplug for a little while. I'm going to be here at this beach house. I'm going to see the sand and the waves and the water and all these different things. Send Peter out. Maybe he can catch some fish for me. Be a great holiday, right? But Mark tells us in Mark 7 that Jesus could not be hid. Jesus' fame had spread abroad. It had went outside of Israel. People knew about him outside of Israel. And this woman came and began to beg him, besought him, that he would cast the devil out of her little girl, out of her little daughter. And as I said, this encounter can be difficult for us, but in context, we see that the disciples have seen the Jews' skepticism. They have seen the Jews' uh, rejection of Jesus, even though they had mountains and mountains of proof, right? Jesus had taught, he had preached, uh, he had healed, they had the prophets, they had all of the promises, they had all the evidence pointing to Jesus as being the Messiah, and they still rejected him. But now the disciples are watching a Gentile woman come to Jesus with what Jesus says is great faith in spite of having none of that. We don't find any evidence that she's ever witnessed a miracle, that she's ever been part of one of his preaching services. Uh, that she has any understanding of the, the law and of the prophets. She is a Gentile, but she has heard of Jesus, and she believes whenever the Jews have seen and heard so much and don't believe. They're getting a glimpse. There's like a little hole poked in until they can see out that God is intending to do something so much greater than just be the Messiah for the Jews. And so as she's coming and she's asking him, she's refusing to take no for an answer. After he gets done here with this lady, after uh, he heals her daughter, uh, he's going to go on to the regions of Decapolis. That's where uh, Legion, the man that was possessed by all the demons, remember him? Mm -hmm. He published throughout all of Decapolis, which was a Gentile region. And Jesus goes and starts healing multitudes in Decapolis. He teaches on a mountainside for three days uh, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, once again in a very Gentile region, and there's a multitude that comes out. They're hearing him. They're, they're seeing all of the things that he's doing, partaking of the miracles and all, without any uh, differentiation, if you will, no difference between Jew and Gentile. Jesus isn't coming to them and saying, uh, what tribe are you from? They're coming and he is healing them. And it says that they, um, verse number 31 of Matthew 15, they glorified the God of Israel. There's an important part of that, that little tiny phrase there. It says they glorified the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the Jews. It was the Gentiles glorifying the God of Israel. Okay. So follow me just a minute. I've got a lot of uh, a lot of foundation to lay here, if you will. And so anyway, after that, they're going to be uh, this great group that had been there for three days. Jesus has been healing all these things. And Jesus then feeds a, a number of people, over 4,000, not counting women and children. Remember, he's kind of done something similar to this before in Israel. He's done something similar to this for the Jews. Now he's in a Gentile region, and he performs the same miracle on a group of uh, probably some 12,000 predominantly Gentiles. And they take up seven baskets full of leftovers 
and the disciples are following Jesus all along, scratching their heads, saying, why is he healing Gentiles? Why is he ministering to Gentiles? Why is he teaching Gentiles? Why is he feeding Gentiles? But this is right on the heels of him teaching that it's not that which comes from without that defiles a man, but that which comes from within. He's teaching them that God doesn't see clean and unclean the same way as they have been, and that God is, in fact, accepting of the Gentiles. Can you imagine the extremely Jewish disciples trying to wade through all this and process all this? It's been difficult for them, right? The reason I'm saying all of this is because we are not Jews. I pointed this out recently several times. We are not Jews. And a lot of times whenever we're approaching Scripture, we identify ourselves with the disciples, with the apostles, right? We're prone to identify ourselves with Paul or with Peter or with John or some of them because, yes, they were believers, they were Christians, but they were Jews. And then we look at whenever Jesus starts going out in Gentile territory, we see them and we associate them with the lost folks, right? And so the Jews are the saved people and the Gentiles are the lost people. But hold on here. The Gentiles are the non-Jews. The Gentiles are us. And so what I want us to do today is I want to identify ourselves with this lady. I want us to see ourselves not as one of the Jews, one of the chosen children of God, but one of the Gentiles on the outside looking in. One of the Gentiles who is in need, one of the ones who is lost and undone without Christ, in need of something from him. And so this interaction that this man has, or that Jesus has with this woman is paving the way for the gospel to come to you and to me. Okay? This is just like the first step out in bringing the gospel to us. Okay? And so let's take a look. And the first thing that I want us to notice from this passage is that this woman was not worthy to approach Jesus. That's, that's pretty simple to understand, isn't it? She was not worthy to approach Jesus. As I said, she was from the region of Tyre and Sidon. They were, uh, they were port cities. They were centers of commerce. Uh, all of the trade routes went through those cities. Okay? And so all of the lands were connected through these cities. And really, this is a good place for Jesus to start his ministry to Gentiles is where all of the roads cross right here so that it goes out into all the world, right? So it's a, a kind of a foreshadowing of what we see in Acts as the gospel goes out into the world. But this woman was from Tyre and Sidon, and with it being this uh, intersection of trade routes, it also had all religions. It had all sorts of idols and paganism and wickedness, and it was known for being corrupt and immoral and indecent. And so it was a wicked people. Jesus even mentions at one point in time, if the miracles that I've done here had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And so we see the comparison here. Jesus is telling the people of Israel, you despise Tyre and Sidon. You think they're wicked. You think they're horrible. They're awful people. But if they would have seen the things that I have done down here, they would have repented a long time ago. They were outside of God's covenant. They were outside of God's promises. They didn't have uh, they didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have the writings of God. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the promises. This woman was unworthy to come to Jesus. On top of that, did you notice it says that she was a Canaanite? We understand what a Canaanite is. That is the part of the people that was in Israel whenever the children of Israel came out of Egypt 
and came to conquer the land, they were to run out the Canaanites. The Canaanites were marked for destruction. God said, completely do away with all of them. They are your enemy, and I want you to get rid of them. And they didn't fully obey, and they left the Canaanites behind. This woman wasn't supposed to have been there. She was an enemy of God, an enemy of his people, supposed to have been destroyed uh, several thousand years earlier. But yet she was there. She was on the outside of the promises. And with that, she had nothing that she could claim to come to Jesus. She wasn't a moral person. She wasn't a godly person. She wasn't someone who had been to the temple. She hadn't offered her sacrifices. She wasn't a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She couldn't go back to any of these things and say, Jesus, I have a claim to you because she came to Jesus and she knew completely that she was part, she was from the wrong place, she was part of the wrong people, and she had no uh, no argument whatsoever she could come to Jesus and say, you need to listen to me, you need to do something for me because of these things. And the reason I bring this out is that for us today, far too often we lose sight of this, uh, this point that we are unworthy. Mm-hmm. We've been, uh, we've been sometimes saved too long. We are moral people. We come from a uh, fairly affluent society. Things are going well in our lives, and we aren't pagans. We aren't idolatrous. We aren't wicked. We aren't all these things. And we think as if for some reason that we have some sort of a goodness that should impress God. We think because we come to church, because we have a Bible, because we... uh, uh, have done all these different things that somehow that makes us worthy to come to the Lord. That makes us worthy to approach God because of our goodness, because of what we have done. We may even compare ourselves with other people and say, well, at least I'm not like this guy or that guy. At least I've never done this or I've never done that. So because of my goodness, I should be worthy. But if we put our lives up beside of the perfect life of Jesus Christ, if we compare our holiness with the holiness of God, the Bible tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The very best that we can do, if we are moral, if we are religious, if we are living our lives as pure as what we can, we are still unworthy to approach unto God. But this woman was able to approach Jesus, not because she was worthy, not because of who she was, but because of who he was. See, she had heard of Jesus. She had heard of his miracles. She had heard of the messages that he preached and proclaimed. She had heard of his compassion, of his love, of his mercy. And she knew within her heart, because of who he was, she could come to him. And so what that tells us is it's not because of any righteousness that we have done, not because of any good works that we've done, not because of who we are, but because of who he is and because of what he has done we are able to approach unto God. And that is huge. If we could just get out of our minds, our own pride, our own arrogance, our own self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, and realize that we are deserving of nothing. We are worthy of nothing because if we were honest with ourselves, we deserve hell. But God so loved the world, right? He loves us because of who he is. Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And because of his love, because of what he has done, because of who he is, we are able to approach unto him. 
We are not worthy, but he is worthy. And because he is worthy, he said we could come. Mm -hmm. And so we see that she wasn't worthy, but she didn't come based on her worth. We don't come to the Lord based on our worth, not based on our sufficiency, but on his. The second thing that we find in this passage is that she wasn't deterred by his silence. This is where it gets difficult for us. She comes up to Jesus. She's crying. She's begging for help. And he seems to be ignoring her. Does that seem a little out of character? Have you ever felt like the Lord wasn't listening to you? You ever feel like he was ignoring you? You're praying, you're seeking after him, you're desiring something from him, and it just seems like your prayers aren't even leaving the room. Not even getting past the roof, if you will. You ever been there? I think we all have. That's part of the Christian life. That's part of living this life. And, and honestly, the accuser of the brother will come to you and say, God's not going to listen to you because you are unworthy, right? You'll start going through all the reasons why God shouldn't listen to you. This brings us back to our first point. It's not because I am worthy. It's because of him that we can come. And so as he's ignoring her, as it seems like it is, she continues to follow after him. She's not deterred by his silence. And so she kept calling out, and the disciples were even asking Jesus, just get rid of her. Verse number 23, send her away, for she cried after us. They seen her as being an inconvenience. Mm-hmm. Right? Remember, I said this is about the disciples. This isn't about her. This is about the disciples learning something, learning something about Jesus. And so they said, get rid of her because she is bothering us. We don't want to listen to her. Just get rid of her. And Jesus responds to him and says, I'm not sent, but to the lost or under the lost sheep of the house of Israel. God had a plan. He had something in place. And Jesus was working something greater that they couldn't see. And this is something for us to remember whenever it seems as if God is silent, there is always a purpose and he is always at work. And so he says, I'm not sent to the Gentiles at this moment. I am sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. God had this plan that was unfolding that it wasn't until the Jews had finally and completely rejected him that the gospel will go to the Gentiles. It even says whenever he is commissioning his disciples, he says to the Jews, first, right? right? right. And this is what Jesus is doing. And so he mentions this. He says, I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this woman is hearing this, but he wasn't actually speaking to her. Mm -hmm. Now, did you catch what she says whenever she first approaches him? She says, oh, Lord, thou son of David. There's a significance to that because son of David is a messianic title. That is something that the Jews referred to the Messiah But she was a Gentile. Jesus was the Jews' Messiah, not the Gentiles' Messiah. She was coming to him with a claim as if she was a Jew. And whenever Jesus says, I am sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, she drops that messianic title. In verse number 25, she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. She says, okay, you made it clear. I'm not a Jew, so I'll get rid of this Jewish facade, and I'm going to come to you just as a lost sinner, just as someone with nothing to claim, but I'm still coming to you. She's persistent, right? She's not deterred. And so whenever she cries out, she says, Lord, help me. He answered and said, it is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Ouch. You want like being called a dog? 
Now, in this passage, this, the Jews would often refer to the Gentiles as dogs as demeaning, as condescending, okay? But Jesus uses a word here that is talking about not some kind of a wild dog, not some kind of a stray dog, but as a pet, okay? As one of the, the family pets, which is interesting. And she takes this and she runs with it. She's not proud. She's not arrogant. She's not saying, how dare you speak to me that way? So Jesus seems to be silent. Then he's, then the circumstances seem to be difficult, but yet she's still undeterred. We'll pick back up with this in just a moment, but I want us to think for just a moment with within our own minds, our own hearts, our own lives, what does it take to deter you? How persistent are you in following after the Lord? What is it that knocks you off track? Is God's silence enough to make you give up? Is it that you've prayed the prayer for a few weeks or a few days or a few months or whatever it is, and it seems like nothing is happening, and so you are ready to just quit and say, okay, I want to look somewhere else because it seems like God's not paying any attention to me? Is it because there's things that's coming into your life and it seems like God's being mean to you, he's being cruel to you, and you say, I don't like the circumstances, I don't like the things that God is giving me in my life, and so I'm done with this and I'm ready to just hang it up and I'm ready to just quit, I'm ready to just turn away from him? Because we find that this woman realizes she is unworthy, but she realizes that he is worthy, and she is going to continue following him no matter what. She's going to continue pursuing him no matter what comes along because of who he is. And so she continues calling out to him and she will not be deterred. She will not turn away because she knows she needs him. There's always a reason for the silence. God is always at work. There's something that he's doing. And as we see this passage unfold, we can see that God is doing something both in her heart. He's drawing her faith out. He's calling her faith out in this point. Not only that, but he's doing something in the lives of the disciples. Anytime that the road is hard, anytime it seems like heaven is silent, God is still at work. I can remember, just as a personal illustration, I can remember seasons in my life, sometimes long seasons in my life, where it seemed like I was completely dried up, nothing was happening, uh, my prayers just became a ritual, just became a routine, and it felt like God wasn't even there, and I was tempted to give up, I was tempted to quit. You ever been there? But we have to come back and recall the very nature, the very person of Christ and who he is, and continue pursuing him, knowing that even though we may not feel it, he is still there because we are not subject to our feelings. Our feelings are not what we're basing our faith upon. We're basing our faith upon the truth of his word and on the person of Christ. And so we can continue even whenever it seems he is silent. The third thing that we find from her is that she was not rivaled in her faith. Jesus marvels at her. He has just been rejected over and over and over and over and over by the very people that he has for thousands of years poured the truth into, revealed himself to, and then for the past three and a half years as he was ministering on earth, he has been uh, doing miracles, he has been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been taking their scripture and shedding light on their scripture, and yet they still reject. And then he comes to this uh, to this uh, Gentile woman 
And yet she has such great faith. And he is amazed by it, I believe. And whenever he says in verse 28, O woman, great is thy faith. The disciples are just kind of standing there with their mouth agape like, he's never said that to me. What do you say to Peter? Wherefore did thou doubt? Where is your faith? Ouch. And he's commending this lady on her faith. This woman knew she was unworthy. She was not deterred by the silence. And she kept pursuing him because of who he was. She knew that he was loving. She knew that he was compassionate. She knew that he was capable. And she believed that he was the son of God. If you look down at verse number 25, and this is interesting to me, okay? It may not be to you, but it is to me. Verse number 25, then came she and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. What do we often think of worship as being? We think of it being singing. We think of it as, you know, bowing down. What? Praise all these different things. We think of being worship. But here, the Bible identifies what she is doing as worship. She is coming to him and begging for him to work in her life. She is praying. And the Bible says that it is worship. It's not the term that she used saying Lord. It's not that she was in, you know, falling prostrate on the ground or anything like that. But that she was praying to him seeking his help, seeking his assistance. And that's what the Bible says is worship. I've, I've taught this in the past. I'm not sure who all is here, but the word worship means worthship. It's showing, it's assigning worth, assigning value. And so as she's looking at Jesus by faith, she is saying, I believe that he is God. I believe that he is able to work in this situation I believe that he loves me, that he cares for me, that he is able to deliver me, and I'm going to come to him and I'm going to persist in following after him and seeking after him so that he can work in my life, he can work in my situation because I believe that he is who he said that he was. And the Bible says this is worship. She is saying he is able, he is God, he is good, and she is valuing him highly. She is setting him up above all things. She is worshiping him. If we continue in this passage and look at the faith that she has and what she believes about him, whenever he responds and he says, it is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs, most of us would have threw up our hands and said, okay, I'm done. How dare you call me a dog? But she looks at Jesus and she says, he can call me whatever he wants because he's God. And her response to it, in verse 27, she says, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. As Jesus gives her this statement of uh, casting the children's meat to the dogs, he's saying this isn't an insult to her, but a, a statement of priority. The children eat first, the dogs get the scraps when they're done. Okay? What kind of a parent, what kind of a father would take the children's food, give it to the dogs and say, you got to starve. I want to make sure the pup's fed. That would be messed up, right? And so Jesus is telling her, I've got to feed my children, the ones that I have covenanted unto myself. I have promised to myself, I'm going to them first before I come to the Gentiles. Okay. And she picks up on this, and it is a message of order that he is going to go to the Gentiles eventually, just not yet. And she responds and says, 
but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall down from the children under the table. She's not stupid, okay? She's looking at this and she's saying, the Jews have had a feast. They've taken for granted the stuff. They've just slopped it everywhere. And there's enough of you to go around that it's just, just let me have a crumb that falls. Let me have some of their offscourings. Let me have some of their rejects because they're rejecting Christ. And so what this is doing, she is equating a miracle of having this child healed of this devil being uh, uh, possessing her child. She's saying, for you, Lord, it would be but a crumb. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? You are showering out all these things on them. You've done so much. You are capable of so much. You are so powerful. You are so good. And this would only be a speck. It would only be a crumb. And that shows her faith that she has in him. How often in our lives do we see our situations, our circumstances, as being so big, as being so impossible, and we question if God can even do it? We don't see our our need, our circumstances as being a crumb. We see it as being something so huge, and by comparison, it's as if God can't do this. But she says to, to the Lord, she says, this is just a crumb for you. This is something so small compared to what you are able to do. See, here's the thing. We, are, we always, we try to evaluate our faith. And we think that our faith needs to grow, that our faith is small, and we start making our faith depend on ourselves, right? We view our faith in, in, from, the, from the sight of ourselves, okay, from a, in comparison to ourselves. And what I'm getting at here is the strength of our faith is not based on us. It's not some kind of a feeling. It's not some kind of imagining. It's not something that we can muster up in ourselves. Our faith is dependent on the one that it is placed on. The greater you see God, the bigger he is in your eyes and your estimation, the bigger your faith's going to be. And if your faith is weak, if your faith is small, it is because your view, your estimation of God is small. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more you learn about God, the more you see what he's capable of doing, the more you understand who he is and what he's doing, the smaller you become, the smaller your problems become, and the greater he becomes. Because faith, the size of faith, the quality of faith is dependent on the object that it's in. You ever put your faith in something that did not merit your faith? There's an oft-used illustration of a uh, a chair for being faith. I don't think anyone came in and checked out their chairs before they sat down to make sure it would hold them up. You placed faith in that chair. Probably from experience, you've sat on those chairs in the past, you've sat on other chairs in the past, and generally chairs hold you up. Right? (laughs) <laughs> generally they do but have you ever had one that didn't yes. we've got some cheap folding chairs at the house some of y'all have sat on them yeah. I have very little faith in them yeah. whenever I sit down on them I sit carefully I'm not going to be like rocking back because they aren't very strong and so my faith isn't very strong okay and so your faith is in proportion to the strength of what you place your faith in. Does that make sense? 
And so if your faith in Christ is small, you need to learn more about him. You need to understand more about who he is. You need to be in the word and understanding what he's capable of, what he's doing, what he has promised, what he has already done. And the more you know him, the more you can rely on him, the more you can put your faith in him, the stronger your faith becomes, right? And so this woman's faith was great because she seen Jesus as great. She estimated that her problem was small in comparison to his capability. And so she was undeterred from following him, though she was unworthy, because her faith in him was great. Because she saw him as being great. So our final thing that we want to look at today, final thing we're looking at, is that ultimately she was not disappointed in the Lord. She was not disappointed in the Lord. She kept following him, and in due season, he took care of her, right? right? It doesn't always happen according to our schedule, according to our plans. But Jesus told this lady, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. Okay? She's following after him. She's begging him. He's kind of pushed her off a little bit. He's ignored her a little bit, and she continued pursuing. And finally, after she says this, he says, your, your faith is great. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. What's her response? She says, good enough for me. She leaves, she goes home, and she finds her daughter healed from that very hour, right? It's not a matter of, okay, I'm not sure if I can believe it. I'm not sure if I'm going to just walk away. Jesus, why don't you come with me so I can see it happen before my eyes? I'm not sure I can trust you. I'm not going to leave because you might disappear. And if it doesn't happen, I want to be able to find you again. As soon as he said, done, she said, good enough. And she went home fully believing that her daughter was healed. I don't think she was wringing her hands along the way and said, did it actually work? Did he really mean it? Will it actually happen? She took him at his word. She went home, and whenever she got there, her daughter was healed. In our lives, we find all kinds of bumps and unexpected twists and turns. And if we keep following Jesus until he finishes what he's doing, until he brings it all together, we're not going to be disappointed. Right. We're not going to be disappointed. The problem comes whenever we quit before he finishes what he's working on. Yeah. Remember I said uh, whenever we were talking about uh, <clears throat> when we were talking about her being undeterred that the wait was for a reason. Mm -hmm. He hurt her every time. He was doing something. She didn't understand it. She couldn't see it. But she continued following until he worked it out. And so if we continue following him, if we continue putting our faith or trust in him, if we continue seeking him, if we continue serving him, in due season it will all come together. And I promise you, I guarantee you, in the end, you will not be disappointed. So we aren't here because we're worthy. We don't come to him because we're worthy, but because he's worthy. We continue whenever he seems silent or the way is difficult because we know that he's at work. Our faith can be great whenever we know him because we're trusting in the power, in his power, and in his character, not in our own. And in the end, he's got us.
And as I said, you'll not be disappointed if you continue trusting him. My challenge to you today, remain faithful. Keep following. Don't stop when the way gets hard. Don't stop whenever there's questions that arise. Don't question him whenever he's silent. Because he is good, he is God, he is capable, and he's got you. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. We thank you so much, Lord, for this passage that we are in today. I know I uh, I looked at quite a bit of things like foundation, but Lord, I just pray that uh, that your folks have gotten exactly what they need from this passage. I just pray that you would apply it to their hearts. Help them to see you for who you are. Help them, Lord, to be uh, increased in their faith and knowing that you are at work, that you can be trusted, and that even the biggest of our problems are just a, a crumb in comparison, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you for all you do for us. Ask you help us, Lord. Just continue faithful until we see you. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And amen.